Um, hi, everybody. It's good to see you all. My name is Ben, as you just heard, and um, I'm just excited to be here and, and talk to you guys and get to share from the Word. Um, we're in this series, Back to Basics, where we are kind of looking at some of the main uh, categories, ideas, and um, callings of the people of God. And I'll start with a story. So Jesus is hanging out um, with his students in Galilee, and they've just had some pretty gnarly experiences. So a few of them have just gone up a, a mountain with Jesus and seen him glorified before them as the Son of God and the King of the universe. Kind of a big deal. And then uh, they come down from the mountain and they, they see Jesus uh, do this miraculous healing, uh, th this boy who had been possessed by demons and no one had been able to heal him, not even the disciples who didn't go up the mountain. And Jesus, in a moment, restores this boy. And then he begins to teach about the ways of the kingdom of God and what does it mean to live in God's world or under God's rule in the way that Jesus does. He starts to sort of expound some ideas. And as he's talking, a young man comes up to him and he says, um, good teacher, would you tell me, uh, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And this is something that Jesus has been talking about a lot. He's been talking about eternal life or like an eternal kind of life, like the, the kind of life that, that is God's life within me and survives all things, including death. And, uh, and Jesus has been talking about this so much that word is getting out, that he's, that he's like offering something. There's something on offer from this guy, and he's claiming to be able to offer this thing called eternal life. And so this young man comes and asks him, what must I do to, to inherit this thing you're talking about, this eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and he says, you know, um, you know what it means to be a good person. You know what it means to be a good person. There's, there's all these commandments, right? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. And, and the man says, yeah, you know, I've kept all these since I was a small boy. I have avoided all the major big sins. And um, I'd like that to be, like, for, for me personally, talking as Ben now, I'd like that to be where the story ends. Jesus being like, you're good then. You did it. You didn't, you didn't blow up your life. You're in. You found this eternal kind of life, this abundant life that is on offer in Jesus. But it says in the scriptures that at that moment, when, when this man kind of explains his morality, no, I'm actually pretty good. Like, I, I've avoided the major pitfalls. It says Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. So whatever Jesus is about to do or say is coming out of love. And Jesus says to him, you, there's one thing you're missing, just one, one thing you lack, one thing I want, I want you to receive, one more thing that you don't yet have that I want you to have, one thing you lack. Um, you need to go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. And it says, the man was disturbed and went away sad because he had many, many possessions. Uh, we're going to talk about money today. We're going to talk about generosity, but don't panic. It's okay, because we're going to talk mostly about God's generosity, and then we're going to talk about my personal struggles with money, which I'm sure nobody else here experiences besides me. Simon put this on our list of basics for the Christian life, um, that last week we talked about how we receive, this week we're talking about how we give. And the reason this is on the basics of the Christian life is because um, Jesus actually talked more about money than almost anything else. 
Jesus has lots to say about money. In fact, as this man walks away, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples are amazed and they say, well, that's, that's crazy. Like, what, 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 how can that possibly be? And Jesus says, oh, oh, it is very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples are dismayed, of course. And they're like, well, we all, we all want to be rich. Are you telling us we shouldn't be rich now? And he says, well, they, they say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looks at them. And I imagine, like, you know, a, a bit of a mischievous smile on Jesus' face that I often like to imagine he gives, gives his followers, and he says to them, uh, well, it's impossible with human beings, but nothing is impossible for God. Yes, even the rich with God, even the rich can enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say uh, that, that those who have left anything for his sake, those who have sold possessions, left homes, left families. He said anybody who's left behind or given up or sacrificed anything in this world, any possession, any relationship in this world for his sake, he says you will not fail to receive twice as much, ten times as much in this life and the life to come. What you give, what you are generously sacrificing for God, God will return to you in the kingdom of God in this world and the world to come. But of course, he doesn't just say, whatever you give, you'll receive back. He says, you will receive it back with persecutions. What? <laughs> it's not a, at all what I wanted to hear. That's not at all what I, where I thought he was going to go. But see, Jesus doesn't promise perfection in our lives, but he does promise abundant provision. So, so Jesus encounters this man, tells him to sell everything, the man walks away sad because he has a lot of possessions and he's not sure he's going to do it. He tells his disciples it's almost impossible. Without God, it is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, anything you do sacrifice, anything you do give up, anything you do give away generously will be returned to you in this life and the life to come and with some persecutions. There, it won't be a perfect life, but it will be a life abundantly provided for. And in this story, I, I begin with this story because to me, it just like is this moment where Jesus seems to be living in a different reality than I am, or, or maybe even than his disciples are. Like it becomes this, this picture of Jesus and his ideas about possessions, wealth, and material goods, and, and the rest of the world. And their ideas about wealth and possessions and material goods. And the two ideologies are meeting and coming head to head. And it's so, it's so like profoundly disjointed, their understandings of wealth and possessions, that it almost doesn't make sense. His disciples are like, what do you mean a rich person can't be saved? I thought, we, what are you talking about? Like, how, who then could possibly be saved? And he says, well, you know, it is possible through God, but there are, there are these pitfalls to wealth. And then he begins to talk about, like, giving and receiving, but it's not like, it's not just like uh, perfection. It, there's, there's like persecution involved. And you start to go, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? What is it you're actually offering? What is it you're actually trying to get us to think about or to see in terms of your relation, our relationship and your relationship to the material goods of this world? This story, honestly, is extremely confusing. 
Like, like when I have encountered this story in the past, um, whether through preaching or just reading on my own, um, I've heard others and tried myself to find any way for this to make sense without changing my understanding of wealth and possessions and material goods. Like I've tried every possible way to make this story make sense without me actually having to change my mind. Because I actually, I, I want you to know this, I have a problem when it comes to money. I know you can't relate, but money has more of a hold over my emotions, my thinking, my life, my choices than I would care to admit. I have a problem with money. Um, and I have, I have an attitude towards money and towards wealth and towards, towards possessions um, that, that seems to be in, in some ways in contrast with Jesus' attitude towards wealth and money and possessions. In fact, let me just sort of contrast the two. Okay, my, my, my attitude towards money and possessions and Jesus's, okay? So for, for me, I, I think it's really important to um, stockpile my wealth and possessions. To, to like, I might have enough right now, but who says I'll have enough tomorrow? And especially like 10 years from now, and especially like 20 years from now. And, and, and so I have this tendency, not just to save and be wise, like wisdom is wisdom, right? But to like actually feel the need to like, hoard and to stockpile and to like anxiously gather as much as I can like a squirrel gathering for winter. I often sense that anxiety in myself, the anxiety about the future, the anxiety about will there be enough? Am I on the right track? Am I moving fast enough? Am I growing my wealth? Am I whatever, right? I feel that anxiety, and why? Because it's in the air that I breathe. Everything about my culture, is, everything about America is designed towards you need more, you should find more, you should stockpile more, and in the future it should only get better and better and more and more and more and more. That's my attitude about wealth. It causes great anxiety. What does Jesus think about my stockpiling of wealth? Well, Jesus teaches pretty clearly some, some really specific and challenging things. In fact, one of the most famous things that Jesus taught his disciples was a little prayer called the Lord's Prayer. You guys heard of this one? And he teaches them in the Lord's Prayer to ask for, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. A few verses later in that same chapter in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, um, don't worry about tomorrow, what you will eat or drink or wear. Why? Because each day has enough trouble of its own. Focus on today. You don't need to worry about your life tomorrow. Worry about today. And I don't think Jesus is telling us not to save for the future. I don't think Jesus is telling us, hey, ignore the retirement plan that your, your uh, work is offering you. I think what Jesus is telling us is don't worry. Like, don't hoard don't stockpile away because I only feel secure tomorrow if I've put enough away today. And like I only feel safe 20 years from now if I've like really put enough away today. Jesus seems to have this understanding that however much I stockpile, however much I hoard and gather and keep to myself, I will never feel secure for tomorrow or 10 years from now. And he, his attitude towards wealth seems to be, instead, just look for the provision for today. That's bizarre. That's crazy talk. How do I get from point A to point B on that one? But that, that's not the only way that my attitude towards money differs from Jesus's. My attitude towards money also involves the fact that um, I work really, really, really hard 
to earn money. Uh, I work really, really, really hard to earn money. And I know a lot of you guys do too. So when I get paid for something or when I earn money, I have the real sense that I have, I deserve this. In fact, I probably deserve more than this. And this money is mine to do with what I will. So I've been waiting for this paycheck, and now I'm going to spend it in this way and that way according to my own desires. This is my honest, I'm confessing to you. This is how I view my money. And I look at Jesus' attitude towards money, and he has this other bizarre, like, strange way of thinking where he seems not to view money as a right that I've earned or wealth or possessions as a right that I've earned, but as a gift from the living God. He, he says things like, hey, look at the birds of the air. They do not toil or labor or stow away in barns stockpiling for tomorrow, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Will he not much more feed you? He gives the sense of generosity, the generosity of God, the gift of God to us. And then he says, look at the, the flowers of the field. They don't, they don't spin and, and weave clothes together, but not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed as beautifully as one of these. Will God not much more clothe you and care for you? And he, he has this, this sense of this generosity of God, this, this full abundant gift that God is giving his people. Jesus seems to be living in a world of abundance where nothing is earned but everything is given. Jesus seems to be, let me say that again, living in a world of abundance where nothing is earned but everything is given. Could not be more different than my understanding of money. I also have this other understanding of money that's related to that one, um, that, that money, because I've earned it, it's for me. Money is for me. My, what I earn, what I make, my paycheck is for me, and it's for keeping. Like, it's for me to keep to myself, to do with what I will and what I desire, whether that means put it away for a rainy day, or whether that means that I'm going to uh, just blow it all on a night on the town, whatever. Like, whatever, it's for me. Jesus has this weird other understanding. And we see it in the story we just heard about the rich young man. Jesus has this weird understanding where for him it seems that money is meant to be given. Wait, what? Like like the money I earn, like with my hard labor, is meant to be given. Because see, for Jesus, it's not, I earn my money so I keep it and do with it what I will. For Jesus, it's God's money and possessions and any provision at all is God's gift and meant to be shared. We see this all through the scriptures. This is why Jesus tells the young man, don't not just go sell all your possessions and give me your money. Not go sell all your possessions and do something for yourself. Go on a really nice vacation with that you know, little nest egg you've just created. No, go sell all your possessions and what? Give it away. Give them away to the, give all the money away to the poor. Like give it all away. Je- Jesus seems to have this understanding of money that actually it is created. Possessions, material wealth, earthly material possessions are made to be given away, just as freely as they have been received. Now let me be honest with you. This is like uncomfortable to talk about. Because um, I understand that this is not the world I was raised in, and this is not the world that most of us operate in. I understand that it is like uh, considered 
um, pretty socially, uh, it's like a taboo to talk about like finances and money and like material possessions. I understand that. I understand that it's like perhaps the most un, one of the more uncomfortable topics we could possibly bring up in church. But Jesus is adamant that there is a version of interacting with wealth, money, material possessions that is more in line with the kingdom of God than, than this version that I've picked up living in this world. And I want to remind us, what, what did we see before Jesus said to this young man, go sell everything you have? He said, it says that he looked at him and loved him. So if Jesus is presenting a different understanding of wealth, money, possessions, material goods... He is presenting it to us out of love. He is presenting it to us out of love. When Jesus invites us to rethink the way we interact with money, possessions, ours versus theirs versus whatever, right? Whenever Jesus is inviting us to reconsider the way we think about these things, he's inviting us to do so out of immense love. So how is this a loving act? How is this loving what Jesus just did to this young man? Sent him away sad? How is that loving? Because I think Jesus knows that money not only is something that like we often like spend most of our lives working towards and working for and trying to get more of, but it's something that actually, if, if we allow it to, can take possession of our affections and our minds and our lives in such a way as to cause extreme anxiety, extreme fatigue, relational breakdown, and early death. I'm, I'm serious. Like, if we allow possessions and material goods and our pursuit of a better career, a better paycheck, more savings, more, 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 more of whatever it is, if we allow our pursuit of more to get inside and begin to drive the bus, then we are actually headed for a life that will end in anxiety, social, relational breakdown, and early death. We know this, right? We know about the dangers of workaholism. We, we know about like, what happens when we can't control the stress that often is caused by money. We know how, what that does to our bodies. We know what it does to our relationships. We know this. And Jesus is inviting us to consider a way out. Jesus is offering us a way off the hamster wheel. A way to rethink our relationship to the material world, material goods, and wealth so that we don't have to kill ourselves in the pursuit of this golden idol. He's offering us freedom. Why? Because he looks at us and he loves us. He doesn't want us to sacrifice our lives, our children, our families, our time on the altar of more, 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 more. He wants us to live free. And he shows us the way. He shows us the way. All those things we said, he, he shows us the way by, by inviting us to think about provision for today. By inviting us to see wealth and possessions and material goods as a gift from God rather than something we've earned 
And then finally, by inviting us to be generous people who give and give and give and give. It's for our sake, not for his. So there's a lot of places in the scriptures, in the New Testament especially, that talk about our relationship to money and talk about how to begin, how to begin to have this understanding of money that Jesus had. How do we begin to be this free in a world that's obsessed with always meeting these financial goals? Like, what, how, do we, how do we become free people? And I'll be honest with you, um, I, 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 um, <laughs> some of you I know are like in the tech industry and make money that I could never dream of. But I will be honest with you, I have been um, a, a, a gigging artist for most of my adult life and also spent some of that time in uh, ministry circles. Two places that you, you will work that you will not make, I want to say any money, but barely any money. You won't make much money. So I don't, I, I, finances have always been a struggle for me. I've never, never been like comfortable, right? And yet, regardless, and yet, I found that what little money I do have can have almost like an extreme hold on my psyche, can cause extreme anxiety. And if you, so if you think like, Ben, this is great, but I don't actually have any money. Well, let me ask you this. Does, does your lack of money cause you stress? then perhaps Jesus wants to set you free. If you're like, if you're like Ben, I'm actually pretty comfortable because I, I do work in the tech industry. I did get an engineering degree as opposed to a theater degree. That's me. Uh, so I actually am pretty comfortable. So I actually, I don't think this is much of a problem for me because I do give away generously and yada, yada. And let me ask you this. If it were all to disappear, if Jesus were to say to you, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, would you go away sad? Jesus wants to set you free too. It's for all of us. So how do we begin to have this attitude? How do we begin to have this, like, this understanding of money that Jesus has where I'm looking for today's provision as opposed to tomorrow's provision, where I'm receiving everything as a gift and where I'm being generous and giving away to others? Much of the New Testament is devoted to this question. There's a couple places in particular that are really, really powerful. And the Apostle Paul writes quite a bit about money, especially in the book of 2 Corinthians. I'm going to look at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Kind of some classic New Testament passages about money, and they're actually really, really practical. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And I just want to talk about the Apostle Paul for a sec. Just like one, one quick sec. Okay? The Apostle Paul who writes this um, is a man with a, a, immense career potential. In fact, his career success begins in his early 20s as a Pharisee and a teacher of the law, and he is like a scholar of scholars, a rising star. He has immense career potential. People are looking at him as like the future leader of the Jewish people. Like, like they're looking to this guy as like, wow, he's just going to like, he's going to be president one day. Like this, this guy's incredible. And then we know from the story of Acts, which we went through a few months ago, that, that Jesus gets a hold of him in a really powerful way. Like really just like grabs on to him. And you know what he does with his career? He goes, <laughs> he goes home back to where his family's from in Tarsus. For like 14 years. And you know what he does? He learns how to make tents. He becomes a tradesman. He becomes a tradesman. And he lives the rest of his life without like a home, but living in other people's homes, making tents enough to like provide for his own food and preaching the gospel everywhere he goes. And he has this incredible statement in one of his letters where he said, he describes himself this way. He says, he, he describes himself as having nothing but possessing everything. 
Hear that again. Paul describes himself as having nothing, but possessing everything. I don't know of a statement in regards to like money and material goods and possessions that, that better describes the freedom that is offered in the kingdom of God than somebody who has nothing but possesses everything. Well, but Paul, like, he probably had, like, a satchel with his tent-making tools. Like, come on, he had something. And I think what he means is, like, he didn't hold anything as his own. He didn't, like, grab onto it. For Paul, even his body was a rental. Like, I don't own anything, but I, because I am a child of the king of the universe, possess everything. I'm abundantly provided for. So when, it, when I'm looking for someone to teach me like Jesus' attitude towards wealth and money and possessions, Paul's a good guy to look at. And he says some crazy things to this, this church in Corinth. So he's actually writing to churches at this point, um, inviting them to donate to this, this um, fund that's taking care of the disciples of God in other cities. So, so it's like, we're going we're gonna, to, it'd be like if in Grace City, um, you know, like when, when um, the, the war began in Ukraine. I don't know if you remember that Sunday, but we had this opportunity with this like thing on the screen for us to donate to an every nation, our family of churches, every nation, to an every nation church in Ukraine who was then providing care for the people on the ground. It would be like that. Okay, so he's, he's taking up a collection for people elsewhere that are in need. Okay, and he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Ooh, grace of God. It's been given among the churches. I, I'm in. Like, I want some grace of God. Like, tell me about the grace of God and, like, how I can get some more grace of God in my life. And he says this, for in severe test of affliction, hang on, does not sound like grace. I thought we were doing the grace of God. I thought we were talking about, like, God was giving grace and favor and goodness to people. And then the, your next statement is in severe affliction. What are you talking about? Like, like grace means, like, we don't suffer. We don't have a problem, right? But he goes on. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, now we're talking, now we're talking. Okay, grace, abundance of joy, I'm in. Yes, that's what I'm in for, that's what I want. Their severe test of affliction and their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Whoa, 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 we're off the grace train again. Like something's gone wrong, Paul. Like this is not what we were supposed to be talking about. We're talking about the grace of God, abundance of joy, yes, affliction, extreme poverty, not so much. What does he say? I want you to know about the grace that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. <laughs> How does Paul describe the grace of God in action in the churches of Macedonia? Well, they're going through a hard time, but their joy in the Lord is unstoppable. So out of their lack of resources, they are giving generously. It's called the grace of God in action. There's more. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They didn't just like give what they can afford. They gave more than they can afford. This reminds me of when C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity is talking about like giving and generosity or what he calls charity. And he says, the people always ask me, how much should I give? And he says, I'm, I'm afraid the only safe answer is more than you can afford. Because, because, why? Because if I'm only giving what is comfortable, then 
it actually is still me controlling my resources as if I've earned and have the right to them. Instead of trusting God for today's provision by allowing him to to have given me everything as a gift and, and ask for however much he desires. So they give beyond their means. And then verse 4, begging. They are begging Paul earnestly for the favor, which, by the way, favor is the same Greek word as grace, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. These people, these people are having a hard time in a test of affliction. And they are overwhelmed with joy in the Lord. That out of their lack of resources, their extreme, he says, extreme poverty, what do they do? They beg Paul, please, Paul, let us give more. What more can we give? Can we sell something? Can we give you some more? We know people are hurting. Can we give more? What can we do? Is there anything else we can do, Paul? We're begging you. Let us have the grace or the favor of taking part. How in the world is this possible? Because I, I, I don't have extreme poverty. Like, like, I know I just told you I don't make much money, but still, according to, like, the percentages of the world population, like, I'm still super rich compared to most of the world, right? We know this. We know this, yeah? Wherever you're at in this room. Uh, and I'm not trying to make light of anyone's financial struggles. Like, I know there are people who really do struggle in our church, and I understand that. And, and in the midst of that, these churches in Macedonia overwhelm, overflow with joy in the midst of severe hardship in such a way that they are begging to do more, to give more, to sacrifice more. This reminds me of um, Mother Teresa. Do you guys know Mother Teresa? Uh, there's a little book, if you ever want to learn about Mother Teresa, there's, there's a little book by Malcolm Muggridge called Something Beautiful for God. And he wrote it when he was in Calcutta with Mother Teresa for several months, kind of learning about her work. And over and over, over and over and over, he, he kind of notes, he kind of takes, takes notice of the fact that she's always, day in and day out, asking, what more can I sacrifice for Jesus? What more can I give? Like, like it was her great joy to, like, give up more. And I'm just like, when I hear about people like that or people like these Macedonians who in their lack are just begging to give more, I, I sometimes, if I'm not in a great like, state of mind, I, think, I honestly think like, th- that's sick. Like something's wrong with them. They need help. But, m- but most of the time when I hear that, I'm like, how do you begin to have a mindset like that? Like how, how, how do I begin to get that free? Is it possible, this weird alchemy that happens where it's like, in the kingdom of God, extreme affliction, extreme poverty, plus joy in the Lord equals extreme generosity. Like, that's crazy math. And yet, I want it. Like, I want to be that kind of person. Like, I want, especially like, like this idea of, of their joy and their poverty overflowing in generosity, like, like welling up. And I want that. Like, I want that kind of life. I want to be that free, that full of, of God's, like, provision, that, like, sure of my care in the Lord. Like, I want, to be, I want to be like that. How do I begin to be like Mother Teresa and just ask, what more can I give? What more can I do? And Paul says in verse 5, and this, they did all this, not as we expected, They didn't do it because we asked them or because we expected them to. I'm not up here today to try to get you to give more money to Grace City. I don't work here. I don't care. 
Because God's not asking us for generosity for his sake. He, he wants to set us free. So, so not as we expected. They're not doing this because we expected them. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God, by the will of God to us. They gave themselves to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord. The, the solution, the biblical solution to your financial anxiety is not more money. It's union with Christ. The, the biblical solution to, to my tendency to hoard and keep things for myself is not me going to more small groups and hearing more sermons and reading more books about being generous. It's union with Christ. The, the, the thing, uh, the, the biblical solution for those late nights where I can't fall asleep because I'm worried about when my next paycheck is coming in, I'm not sure I'm going to afford the bills tomorrow that are due, da, 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 is not a better job with more secure paycheck. That would be nice, and God often gives us those things. The biblical solution is first, union with Christ. And anything else that comes, that comes of my financial situation, a better job, more stable income, Gen- better generosity. Wouldn't that be nice? Anything else is a result of union with Christ. How could they possibly overflow in extreme poverty, severe affliction, joy of the Lord? How could that possibly overflow in rich generosity where they are begging Paul to be allowed to give more? The only way is union with Christ. This is how Paul could say, I have nothing, but I possess everything. Why? Because when I'm united with Christ, I understand that all things, all things, and abundantly more than I could possibly ask or imagine are found in Jesus Christ. I need to look nowhere else. I do not need to go searching. I do not need to go find a better career. I do not need, what I need First and foremost, before I do anything else, is union with Christ. That's where it is all all the riches of the universe. All the riches of his goodness. Every every thing I could possibly need. Every meal I eat. Every bill I pay. Everything that I need in this life is found in union with Christ. And I don't just mean like spiritual goodies, like the warm, fuzzy feelings. I mean, I mean physically. Like Jesus called himself the bread of life. Have we ever considered that he meant it literally? Like when, when all else fails, when there is famine in the land, when you don't have enough money, I will sustain you. And if he really is that abundant and that generous and that full of provision, then union with him will release all the chains of financial anxiety and all the chains that keep me greedy and unwilling to be generous. That will release me. The solution to my bad thinking about money is union with Christ because he overflows with provision. He overflows with provision. So this is what the Macedonians did, and they gave generously. In the next chapter, there's a really famous passage where Paul goes on to talk about generosity in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. Starting in verse 7, he says, each one, he's, he's talking to the church in Corinth. He doesn't want them to feel burdened or pressured, but he says this, each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, 
not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful giver. You guys heard that one before? God loves a cheerful giver. When I was growing up, occasionally, not often, my, the church I grew up in was great, but occasionally I heard, like, God loves a cheerful giver as, like, you should give and smile about it, even though you don't want to, right? Not under compulsion, he says, but because God loves a cheerful giver. This, this Greek word, perhaps you've heard this passage preached on, this Greek word cheerful actually um, more, more relates to our word, like, hilarious or hysterical. And, and it's the same picture that Paul already gave us with people begging, begging to take part in, in giving, begging to give, right? Can you imagine if Simon came back from South Africa and we were all like, please let me give? It'd be crazy. Anyway, um, but, uh, but he's giving us this idea of this, like, hysterical or hilarious giving. The idea is, like, is like people who are uncontrollably, exuberantly, like, giggly giving. Like, like just, like, gi- gi- giddy with, with giving. People who just like can't, like they're throwing their wallets at the wall. They're just like, let me give, let me give, let me give. And he's saying God loves it when people do that. Why? Because it means they're free. It means they trust him. It means they're secure as children of God, that God will provide for me. That's why. Jesus isn't asking us like, go sacrifice. Like you better go sacrifice, but make sure you don't complain because God loves a cheerful giver. He's saying, I want you to be free. I want to lead you to the place where your giving is almost hysterical, almost hilarious. It's giddy. It's overflowing with joy, even in the midst of testing and affliction and hardship and poverty. Because that's how abundant our king and his kingdom are. That's how abundant. And he goes on. He goes on in verse 8. God, (laughs) by the way, so God loves a cheerful giver. And by the way, don't forget, God is able to make all grace abound to you. How much grace? All grace. But what about the grace I need to pay my bills this week? All grace. He is able to make all grace abound, abundance, abound to you, so that having all sufficiency, having enough, having more than enough, having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Moving on to verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. He's saying, if you think you don't have enough, try being generous and see how God fills that need. Like, he's able to make all grace abound, abound to you. So that having all sufficiency, that word sufficiency in the Greek really means contentment. So it's actually less about like, if I give $5, Jesus will bless me with $500. It's not that. It means contentment. It means it's in my spirit, in my mind. I know I am cared for. I am well. I possess everything, though I may have nothing. It's, it's a sense of I am cared for. I'm rich in the kingdom of God. I'm the child of the king of the universe. There's enough and there is more than enough. He's making all grace abound and abound and abound and abound and abound and abound to me so that I can be generous in all things. Social psychologists will talk about all the time how wealth is a state of mind. Wealth is a state of mind. So this is why a millionaire can feel like they don't have enough money. And somebody who, doesn't, who lives on a dollar a day can feel 
the opposite. Like, that's why that's possible, because wealth is actually a state of mind. This is what psychologists talk about all the time. And when, sometimes when psychologists, like, come out with a new theory, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's in the Bible. Because Jesus actually created us that way. Jesus actually knows that what we need is not more money. So if you just give a little bit to me, I'll give you a bunch more. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want to make every grace abound to you. So that you can see the provision of God, which itself is exuberant, which itself is extravagant, which itself is hysterical and giddy and over the top. It's those moments when like you don't know what you're going to do for like paying this bill and money shows up and you just laugh. Or like story, maybe you've heard stories of people who are like, we didn't know how we were going to buy groceries. And then suddenly there was like a $100 bill taped to their steering wheel. I know somebody who that happened to. And they were like, we got to eat like kings that week. It was incredible. And they're laughing as they're telling the story. Because God's abundance, God's generosity is so good that not necessarily will we be like, oh, yeah, now I've, now I've reached all my financial goals because I gave a little to church. So God blessed me with all my financial desires. Instead, it's God provided everything I needed in the moment. And because of that hysterical, creative, interesting, delightful, whimsical provision of God, I too feel released and and free to just give, to be like, I I have something right now to give, and I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow, but here it is, because it doesn't own me, because I am a child of God, and I live in his abundant kingdom. And it says that that he will make all grace abound to us at all times, and we will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, because here's the deal. Some of us in this room might have a really healthy understanding of money and riches and finances and all that stuff. Some of us might. Probably not many of us because we live in the world we live in, but some of us might. And for us, our primary uh, place of stinginess and fear and and, um, scarcity, a feeling of scarcity, might not be money. It could be something else. there's, there's a lot of uh, sociologists who are talking about how the primary commodity in America has shifted from, from being money to being time. But I, don't, but I don't have enough time to give to the people who want my time. So I'm going to be stingy with my time. Well, I'm, I'm just exhausted, so I'm going to be stingy with my time. And, and Paul is saying that he will enrich us in every way in order to be generous in every way. Low blow, I know. That's like below the belt, isn't it? I'm sorry. But it's in the Bible. Like, like Jesus um, invites us to be generous where, hear this, Jesus invites us to be generous where we feel the most impoverished. Jesus invites us to be generous where we feel the most impoverished so that he can abundantly meet every need. So if my most impoverished place is my time, which, confession, is true for me, the place where I feel like I have the most lack is time, that's the place Jesus is inviting me to be generous, to set me free in abundance so that I walk through the, t- walk through the world with a sense of there is enough time. I am not pressed for time. I don't have to hurry. I don't have to worry. I can slow down and spend time with people. It's a hard one, isn't it? But he's inviting us not to live in a sense of scarcity in, in money or in time. Or perhaps, 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 it's affection. I feel really lonely, so I don't feel like I have any affection and love to give to anybody else. 
That's where I feel the most impoverished. And Jesus, what does he do? He looks at us and he loves us. And he invites us to be generous in the place of our poverty. Begin to give love. See what that does to your feelings of loneliness. See what that does to your sense of aloneness and your lack. See, the solution, the solution to feeling lonely or isolated is not a better community or a better spouse or better best friends. It is the same as it is with money. It's union with Christ. The solution to I don't have enough time and I can't possibly slow down and actually be present with people and love on them well, that's not possible. There's no time for me. The solution is actually not to go rearrange your calendar. It is union with Christ. And if arranging your calendar comes out of that, so much the better. But only as a response to that abundance, that generosity, that tsunami of goodness that is found in Jesus Christ. So I think Jesus, when he invites us to rethink how we give, he's inviting us to think about money, because that's the thing he talks about the most. But he's also inviting us to think about time and affection and anything else that we feel like is lacking, because he doesn't, listen to this, he doesn't want his children to walk through the world feeling like there's not enough of whatever. He doesn't want his children to walk through the world feeling like I can't possibly have enough of this resource or that resource to give it away. And generosity isn't just the calling and the sacrificial act. Generosity is his cure. It's his cure. It's how we begin to step into the kingdom of abundance. And not when we give out of compulsion, right? Paul says not out of compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. It's not about, it's not about giving because I have to. But it's about understanding that he makes every grace abound to me and so I can be generous with whatever resource is scarce in my life. He doesn't want his children to walk through the world feeling like there's just not enough. Because he's made a world, he's made a world where we get to walk with him. And he is abundantly more than enough. Whew. So the solution to our financial anxieties, our time anxieties, our affection anxieties, is um, not first and foremost. It can be part, this can be part of it, but it's not first and foremost to get more of those things. It's not to get more money, get more affection, find a way to have more time. It's first, first and foremost, union with Christ. And that is possible because Jesus Christ came into our world as one of us and he split the dividing wall, the veil between us and God by breaking his body on the cross and pouring out his blood that we can have free, unguarded, wholehearted access to this abundant kingdom and this generous king. So in a moment we're going to take communion. And if you are struggling with, like, scarcity, I know we talked mostly about money, but if it's a different thing, great. But I would invite you to think about money because it's usually unconscious for most of us. If you're struggling with scarcity and time, money, affection, any resource, um, understand that your generous king wants to provide for you abundantly in that area. And as we take communion, make a choice to be united with Christ in the place of your lack 
Make a choice as we take communion to be united with Christ in the place of your lack. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, there's no weirdness about staying in your seat while we take communion. But for those of us who do follow Jesus, he invited us to do this again and again and again to remember our union with him through his blood shed for us and his body broken for us. Uh, If you need gluten-free, that's available on this side along with regular on both sides. Let me pray for us and the worship team will come up and lead us. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you are a generous king. You provide for us abundantly, creatively, Jesus. I'm thinking about the time you found the temple tax that you had to pay in the mouth of a fish. You provide for us with great joy and creativity and wonder. Jesus, would you help us to be as free with our resources, whatever they are, as you are free in giving us those resources? Would you help us to see where we're lacking and to have the courage to trust you and to give and to watch you meet every single need we have? We love you, Jesus. We trust you, Lord. We come to the table now to receive your broken body and your shed blood and receive you in all of your abundant goodness. We love you. In your name, amen. Amen.